are diving into a new series, and one of the conversation pieces that happens all the time, especially when people are um, visiting us for the first time or getting their first chance to kind of talk with me, is they ask about the messages, and they say, well, well, Mike, or Pastor Mike, or Pastor, you know, do you, how do you preach? Do you preach series? Do you preach topical? Do you, pre- you preach line by line, don't you? And, uh, and oftentimes, people are very hung up on uh, a style, and you know what? All the styles are good. They have benefits, and, uh, and because of that, I do all the styles. And so uh, we're not just one thing. And so for the next season, we're going to walk through a book of the Bible, a letter, as a matter of fact, and the book is 2 Timothy. So you're going to want to spend some time. Uh, you can read ahead of me. You can jump over there. But I am really excited for the next several weeks. We are going to walk through, and uh, we're going to pick this letter apart. And I'm really excited to see. I feel like there was just a kind of a divine timing. God's so faithful. Um, it's been, gosh, probably since June of last year, I have had for May of this year on the schedule to talk through Second uh, Timothy. That's how long ago we kind of put that together. But I do think as it's begun to unpack uh, that it is something that's just so relevant for our church and for our life in this moment. And uh, I'm really excited. So what I'm going to do to just kind of give you a rundown is uh, it's one letter, but I'm going to pull out of that letter a lot of different themes that uh, Paul talks about as he writes to his his protege, uh, Timothy. And each one of those themes I'm going to talk about is a tool that he is passing on to the next generation so that Timothy can be effective leading within the church moving forward. And so we're going to talk about a series of different tools that kind of work through that. And and uh, and the reality is Paul's writing to his young uh, protege who's a church leader, and he's talking to him about the fact that church ministry and church life gets messy, It gets messy, and if you've been around church for a while, you've experienced some of the mess. You've seen some of the arguments. It's too loud. It's not loud enough. There's too much light. There's not enough light. I can't have those colors. I don't like these chairs. I don't like that person. Come on now. All families have those conversations. You have those conversations in your house. You don't think that they don't happen in this house? Some of you are like, it's never too loud in my house. Yeah, that's not true. (laughs) And so Paul's writing to his protege and and Timothy, and he's having this conversation about leading within the messy dynamics of family that is the church. And so if you've been around church for a long time, you're going to recognize some of these things. If you've checked church out and maybe checked out of church and now you're trying to check back in, some of the things we talk about are probably going to be connected to some of the reasons maybe you checked out. Because we're in the people business here, and whenever there's a lot of people, it gets messy. Come on now. And so we're going to have some conversations about that. So some of it's messy, but every tool that he's imparting is important. And so we're going to just pick apart some of those tools because there's something important about having the right tools for the job. When you have the right tools for the job, there's not much that you cannot accomplish. It's funny because... uh, for a while there, I was hooked on these survival shows. There was cool ones that were out, like Man versus Wild, and you would just eat the grossest things, right? And, and uh, dual survival, and there was two guys trying to survive, and, and they always had limited resources and limited tools. And I was enamored with these individuals that could survive with like a pocket knife and a, and a little piece of cotton, and they could, they could figure out how to survive in like the harshest conditions, and they could just bite the heads off snakes and drink them live, and I was just crazy things they would do, just squeezing elephant dung and drinking water. I mean, it was amazing. It's a great show. Google it. But I was enamored with this idea of being able to survive even if you didn't have the tools to survive. And there's something that is naturally, uh, you know, maybe it's the testosterone thing. I'm not sure, ladies, how you feel about that. I, I just, I don't have your perspective on it. But maybe it's just a crazy testosterone thing that I just want to see a, a, a human conquer the, the environment without all the tools to do it. But Here's the reality is I recognize I don't have any of those skills. I've tried. I've even bought some of this is embarrassing, but I've even bought some of the survival things just to like have them in, in my car when I go on road trips, just in case, you know, like the, you know, the, the storm hits and I have to figure out how to, how to survive with a pocket knife and a flint striker, right? And I'm like, I have to have all these things because I've watched it on TV. I probably totally could do it. But here's the reality, and I'm honest about this all the time. I don't even camp. I don't camp. I loathe camping. You know why I don't camp? Here's my philosophy on camping. I work very hard so I can live in a house. (laughs) Right? 
why would I vacation like I can't live in a house? When I vacation, I want luxury things. I want hot tubs and the beach. I don't want leaves for toilet paper. So that's my take on camping. But here's the reality. It probably got into me at a very young age that I just didn't have what it took to ca- take to camp. So the last time that I can really remember camping, this is embarrassing, but it's just true. I was 16. And uh, I had a, a group of friends. There were four of us. And we decided that we were going to go camping. And our parents were insane. And they were like, have fun. So there's four 16-year-olds. And one of us, his parents had a Suburban and a boat. And they're like, yeah, you can take the boat. I'm like, seriously, they just let us go. Right? The 90s were a different time. And so, <laughs> so we, we go into, and I, I'm like, literally, we didn't camp at all in my family, right? And so, so we're pulling out all this camping gear out of his garage, and we're loading the Suburban with it, and we're loading the boat up, and we're like, oh, it's going to be awesome. We're going to drive out. We're going to camp at this lake. We're going to fish, and, you know, all these things that I don't do, but I'm like, sure, I'll go. And we're bringing our BB guns because we're warriors. And uh, <laughs> so we, we drive out. I don't know how long we drove, but we got way too late of a start, and we get to the campground in the middle of the night. Yeah, see, no, we're 16. We don't know what we're doing. And we show up, and the first question is, does anyone have a flashlight? Did anyone grab fire? The ability to make fire. And we have this thing, we are loaded to the gills with equipment and absolutely no way to set it up, no way to cook, no way to do anything. We slept in the Suburban on top of all the gear. It was the most uncomfortable night. And uh, it was the worst. And I left going, camping is the worst because we weren't prepared and we didn't have the right tools and we didn't know what to do. If you don't have the right tools, it's hard to be successful. Ever feel like you were given an assignment and you didn't have the right tools to do it? Maybe at work, they said, hey, accomplish this task. And you looked around and you're like, how can I accomplish this task? I don't have the paperwork I need. I don't have the data I need. I don't have the tools I need. I don't have the equipment I need. There's no way to actually put in this thing without that tool. And we don't even have that tool. It's frustrating when you don't have the right tools. I remember at school being assigned a group project and then being told that the only way to do it was to go to the library and use these particular books. And then you go to the library and those books aren't even there. And you're like, how are we supposed to do this? This is like pre-Google being the answer for everything. How are we supposed to do this assignment? We don't have the tool that you want me to have. How about this one? You're at home and you're like, hey, you know what? Let's barbecue. And you turn on the grill and you go, nothing happens. There's no propane. No one took care of tightening it up. It's your fault. You don't have the right tools. (laughs) <laughs> My favorite example of feeling like I didn't have the right tools, it was uh, June 8th, 2006, maybe it was June 9th, we just had a baby, and we put that baby in the car seat, and there's like nurses with you the whole way, and they're talking you through it, and everything's great, and they're making sure that the car seat's in, and then they go, snick, snap, and then they go, okay, have a good time. And I'm looking around and I'm like, are you seriously leaving me with this human life? This little human life? You should definitely come home for like the first month and just make sure we're okay, right? Just feeling like you didn't have the right tools for the job is so frustrating sometimes. And here's what happens. Sometimes in our walk with Jesus, in our faith walk, in our church life, we feel like we don't have the right tools. We don't know the right information. We don't have the right behaviors. We don't have the right things to make it work. And we get frustrated. And it looks like other people have the right tools and they seem to be able to figure it out. And how come we don't have the right tools? How come it's not working for us the way it looks like it's working for someone else? What tool do they know? It's a mystery. Tell me the tool that you're using. Help me. And then one of two things ends up happening. Either one, we fake it. And we just fake it. We just... Want ever to present like we have the right tools. Yeah, our campsite's great. It's great. Meanwhile, everything's a hot mess. Or we bail out. We go, whew, that place was judgmental. That place was whatever. Something must be wrong with them because I don't fit in. Because I don't have the right tools. And so we get frustrated. We get tied up and we're wondering, do we have the right tools? What does it even look like to have the right tools? And 
this whole wild experience we have called following Jesus and being a part of the church. What does that even look like? Can we even be prepared? Can we have those tools? Does God give us those things? Do we have to go and get them? Does God even care if we have them? Does it matter? That's the tension that we walk into in the book of 2 Timothy. This letter that Paul writes forward to the church that's now exploded onto the scene that is now trying to figure out how to get along with one another and how to follow God and and how to kind of come under uh, uh, this mutual submission and serve one another and serve the world and, and accomplish this mission that God's left them with. And they're trying to figure it out and they're trying to see what tools they need to make this work. And, and this looks successful over here, but it's not the same over here. And this guy's kind of using his gift this way and overpowering and is this right? And how is this supposed to work? And there's tension. And so Paul writes this incredible letter. And here's the thing about the book of 2 Timothy. It's literally the last letter he writes. It's his swan song. After 25-something plus years of ministry and, and traveling and starting churches and getting rocks thrown at him and being shipwrecked and going to jail and pleading his case and getting out of jail and starting churches and seeing miracles happen. After all of this, Paul finds himself for the second time in a Roman prison. And this time, the outlook, not so good. And so Paul is writing and he's been kind of stuffed away in these Roman prisons. They were the worst. They were oftentimes just holes in the ground and they would dig a hole and drop a grate and then put you under the grate, someone on the grate, and then another grate. Sometimes you'd be stacked two or three deep in a hole in the ground. He's in, yeah, imagine being on the bottom of one of those holes. Everything's falling down. And he's in a prison situation like that. It's not pretty. And he's completely dependent on others coming and seeing him and bringing him some resource. And he knows that he's been convicted. Nero is wicked and wiping out Christians. And he knows that he is uh, uh, at least in line. Unless a miracle happens that's different than what he sees God intending to do, that it is, near, it is the end. And he writes this letter at the end of his life to his protege, to Timothy. And it's this fascinating conversation piece that we see. It's around AD 61 in history. It's different in tone than the first letter he writes, which had a little bit more of a, a, a energetic, like I'm trying to coach and help you and we're in this together because of the, the nature of his current situation. He calls Timothy his son in the faith over and over again, which is just a great expression. As a matter of fact, on all of Paul's journeys, there's no one he talks about more than Timothy. If you look through the other letters uh, that he writes uh, in Philippians, he says, uh, he says, you know that Timothy has proved himself. He's as a son to me and, and uh, he can work out the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about Timothy as the son whom I love, who's faithful in the Lord. And he sends Timothy to church after church in their ministry journey to just check on them and strengthen them. He believes in Timothy. He's imparted, he's discipled him. He's invested in Timothy. And now Timothy is leading a church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is kind of a, an important strategic church. It's an important place. And Paul's writing a letter to him saying, I want you to understand what it's going to take to be successful after I'm not here to give you all these tips anymore. And you got to carry the torch and run. And you got to lead the people of God into this next season. And so he writes this incredible letter. And so we're going to unpack this letter. I'm going to just take off little small chunks at a time. And, and uh, we're going to follow where Paul goes. I'm not going to try to make it say something it doesn't say. And, and, uh, and I believe it's going to tell a story to us as the church. And I'm in the book of 2 Timothy. I'm going to start in chapter 1. And let me just ask you a question as we kick off this conversation. Paul knows his time is short. If you knew your time was short, how important would it be to you to make sure you passed on something about your faith to the generation behind you, to the generation coming up? How important would it be that you told some of your story, that you imparted some of your journey, that you gave away some of what you had received so that it would bless and empower the next generation? Would that be important to you? Would it occur to you? That this journey that you've been on with Jesus and as a part of this church and as a part of his church is not just for you. 
that as, as you were getting close to maybe and you knew it was the, near the end of your life, how important would it be to, to be able to pass some of that on? Because it's very important to Paul. And so he writes this letter. And some of it is personal and some of it is corporate and we'll unpackage some of those things. And, and, it, and it begins uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. And he says, Paul, he writes his name. It's impressive. <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, listen, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting because this is a very personal letter, but he has every intent that it becomes a public reading. So it serves a dual purpose. He's writing specifically to Timothy, but it's be like if I was writing a personal letter to you, but I knew everybody was gonna read it. And so I'm writing to you and I have very specific things that are for you, but these things are also going to be overheard by everyone. And so I'm writing in a tone that kind of lets everybody be a part of knowing what I've directed for you to do. He understood this letter would likely be read from church to church to church, that it would be copied down and it would be passed by, by a courier to different locations. And they would read it and they would say, this is Paul's instructions to his protege about how to survive without him as part of the church. And so that's why this formal greeting is so important. Timothy is pastoring at this point. He's no longer uh, journeying with Paul from church to church, location to location. God sent him to Ephesus and planted him there. And Ephesus is this cool uh, uh, church. It's this cool environment. It's kind of a port city. Uh, the numbers of how many people live there are um, through history uh, argued. Um, for a long time, they said probably up to 200,000 people live there. Uh, now they probably think more like 50 or 60,000. Either way, it was one, maybe the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a metropolis. It had uh, uh, water access. It's kind of located in Turkey. Uh, it doesn't have the water access it used to have 2,000 years ago. But, uh, but there was a big temple to Artemis there. There was, uh, was it's like one of the seventh wonders of the world. It was, it was, uh, there was artists and there was beauty and it was an eclectic culture and the church had exploded there and there was all of this uh, uh, mixed bag of, of diversity and ethnicity and faith and all of these things coming together and they're trying to figure out how to become the church. And Timothy is a young pastor in an eclectic area. And the first letter, first Timothy, a lot of it has to do with how do you as a, as a young leader uh, uh, try to change the tide of, of culture and history and places where people are so established and rooted in their ways. And that's kind of a big theme of first Timothy. And second Timothy is a, is a little bit more about how do you stay the course? And he writes this letter to Ephesus. And it's important that this letter, that we recognize this letter is be written to the church in Ephesus because the church in Ephesus gets a lot of attention in scripture. Paul writes a whole letter just to this church. Jesus articulates to John in the book of Revelation specific stuff about the book of Ephesus to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? I hold this against you. You've abandoned your first love. Repent and go back to the former things. He says, you've done a good job resisting those, those, those influencers that were trying to influence you, but you've left your first love. You don't love the way you used to love. You've gotten mechanical in your faith and you've abandoned the heart that makes this whole thing matter. That's about 20 years after this, that John writes that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And so this church is an incredibly significant place. And the place that's going to be reading this is going to get some of this right. Come on now. And they're going to get some of this wrong. We know that just through history. So Paul's writing to this specific place. And then he's writing to this specific person. Verse 2. To Timothy, my dear son. Now, there's nobody in the scripture he calls son like this. Over and over and over and over and over again. He wants to invest in him. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. It mattered to Paul to father someone in the Lord. 
It mattered to Paul to have someone coming along behind him who he was investing in, that he was pouring his life into. It didn't matter if it was a biological son, didn't matter uh, how that worked, but just investing behind him was important. It was a story of his life. Over 25 times he refers to Timothy. Verse three. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. He's saying, I am in a hole right now. I'm in prison and I'm thinking about you and I got some time on my hands so I pray for you. And I remember your tears. I remember how hard this has been. I remember the struggle and the fight, but I care about you. You know what's funny? Paul talks about prayer a lot. We don't talk about how much Paul talks about prayer all that often. We talk about Jesus in prayer and James in some direction and pray. You have not because you ask not. But we don't talk all that time. I did like a, 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 an informal survey. I just kind of scanned through the scriptures and I was looking for Paul talking about praying and how much he prays, 42 times I came up with Paul talking about pray without ceasing, pray continually. I always pray. I'm praying for you. I'm continually praying for you. I'm constantly in prayer over this for you. I was in prayer and. Sometimes I think we miss how significant in the life and ministry of Paul who wrote, come on, at least eight, most likely 13 letters in the, in the scriptures. Come on. He wrote up to 13 letters in the scriptures. And, and we look at his life, and I'll just be honest with you. I look at his life, and oftentimes I'm like, ugh. We get it. Paul's awesome. Like, right? We get it. They threw rocks at him, and he didn't die. He's awesome. Like, right? We get it. He got up into this level of heaven and got to see all these cool visions. We get it. Like, I read the letters sometimes, and I'm just like, ugh, seriously. Paul just wears me out. But you know what I don't do? I don't stop and go, this is a guy who was fully committed to prayer. There was power in his life because of prayer. He said things that sound ridiculous on the surface, like pray without ceasing. But he was committed. His life was drenched with prayer. He prayed in pits, in holes, he prayed while being shipwrecked and holding on. He prayed when he had plenty, when he was blessed and people were giving. He prayed all the time and he stayed connected to the heart of his father because he prayed. We underestimate the value of prayer all the time. We undersell it. We take it for granted. Paul never took it for granted. He was committed to praying. I wonder how important it was for Timothy to know that Paul prayed for him. I wonder how much that encouraged him. I wonder how much that blessed him. I wonder how much fire that put in his belly to stay the course, to know, not just in lip service, but to know that in actuality, Paul was praying for him. It wasn't a token, hey, I'll be praying for you. It was, I pray for you all the time. I am in the situation where I wish, if I was in Paul's situation, I'd be praying for me. Lord, get me out of this pit. Haven't I served you? They threw rocks at me. They beat me up. Why am I in this pit? He's in the pit going, strengthen Timothy. Get him to the next place. Give him the courage that he needs. Give him the insight he needs. Give him the wisdom that he needs. I remember how, how difficult things were. I remember that he was in tears. And you know what? I would make me so happy if I could just see him and remind him how awesome he is. You got a friend that prays for you like that? You got a loved one that prays for you like that? You got a praying grandma that prays for you like that? You got someone that prays for you like that? I believe Paul would say, get you one. Get you one. Be one and then get you one. If you don't have someone who prays for you like that, get one. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your kids. Pray with your grandmas. Pray with your grandkids. 
Pray with your friends that are followers of Jesus. Pray. Pray for them. Pray with them. You need it. They need it. Oh, Pastor Mike, I don't like praying out loud. Pray. Just do it. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Where am I at? I have been reminded. I have been reminded of your sincere faith. This is so cool. Which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded it now lives in you also. This is one of those cool verses. Paul says, I knew your grandmama, I knew your mama, and now I know you. And there has been a faith that has passed down from generation to generation to generation. He's been doing ministry for 25 years, and he's saying, your grandmother caught that, and your mom caught that, and they gave that to you. I'm persuaded, and I believe that it's in you. It's pretty funny. I've been, uh, we've been doing Rooted, which is this pretty cool, just amazing storytelling. Learn to tell your story and learn to tell your testimony and ask questions about what you believe. And, and I've done three sessions now total, three groups that I've, that I've worked with. And in those groups, there's always been uh, folks that have been following Jesus for a long time. And it's ironic to me a little bit to hear that oftentimes their story, their testimony, as they tell what they, how they came to know Jesus, they're almost apologetic if they came to know Jesus when they were really young. Because they feel like, well, that's not a great story. Like a great story would be, I was in a hole, I woke up in jail, like, you know, there was blood, bloody bodies everywhere, but then Jesus restored me, and now I'm okay, and, you know, I got off, I got, the case was dismissed, and I'm, you know, whatever it is. Somehow that's like a better story in their mind than their story. Because we always play the comparison game, and we always think somebody else's story is a better story. But I gotta tell you something. Conversation after conversation with person who came to meet Jesus in their youth, when they were young, who saw their grandmother's faith and then saw their mother's faith. And then they got drugged to church when they were little, but suddenly in a moment at a VBS maybe or at a camp or in a, in a service like this, there was a chance where, where someone said, what about you owning your own faith? And they said, I wanna do that. And then they stepped forward and they chose to follow Jesus. And maybe, you know, you ask them about when they got baptized, like, I don't even remember, I was seven or eight or nine. And I, I, I know I wanted to, it was important, but I don't really remember the story. And I'm so sorry. And I'm like, what are you sorry for? This is the greatest story of living in God's will for your whole life that I've ever heard. You are the story. Now, the story of God's redemptive purpose, chasing after the one who was lost, is incredible. But you know what's also incredible? When you live for Jesus your whole life and you demonstrate that you can love God your whole life and never have to flee his arms, that he's been real and present in your story all the way through and you've been able to trust him when you were seven. You were able to trust him when you got to elementary school. You were able to trust him in junior high. You were able to trust him in high high school, you were able to trust them in college or as you joined the workforce, you were able to fall in love according to God's perfect plan. Meet someone, stay pure, live with them and, and, and have a marriage that, that was able, like you were able to do all of those things and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, my story is so boring. Your story is not boring. Your story is the story of what God's provided freedom for all of us to do. We need the power of your story. And Paul's saying, your story, Timothy, is awesome. It was faith in your grandma. Then there was faith in your mom. And at a young age, you trusted in God and you've lived for God the whole way through. And that's awesome. I'm just saying, we need those stories, church. We need those stories. We'll, I'll, take the, I'll take the power encounter story too. We need all the stories, right? I'll take the, I woke up and I don't know where the ashes are spread. Like, I'll take that story too. Because God is a redeemer. He's a God of new beginnings. It's what he does. But I gotta tell you, as a guy who doesn't have that first story, I want that story for my kids. And I need to know that it's possible because you've lived that story. 
right? I need to know it's possible. I'm trusting and counting on you to live that story so I can point at my child and say, you can do this differently than I did this. Come on. We need your story. I pray that my children will have your testimony, your kind of tower power. Generations of following Jesus is not an embarrassing story. It's the most powerful, incredible story there is. Just saying. <laughs> What's funny is how rare that is. Even in the scriptures, it's rare. You look through the scriptures and it's like, David did awesome and then his sons, not so much. Right? God raises up Gideon and then his son, not so much. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a hard and difficult. It's a, it's just, doesn't happen. It's a powerful story. If that's your story, your story's awesome. Just saying. The idea that you can leave a legacy. Verse six. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He's saying, you received this incredible faith story. You learned about Jesus. You understood who you were, and that came generationally through your family. And because of that, I want to remind you something. There is a gift inside of you that was deposited when I laid on my hands, and you're going to need to fan that thing into flame. There are so many layers of what's going on right here. There are so many layers of what's going on right here. First of all, there's a gift of power that occurred when Paul laid hands on Timothy and prayed for him. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying you got access to the Holy Spirit. You had faith in Jesus and then access to the Holy Spirit. You have that now. You have the same power that I have, Paul's saying, as I've gone out and accomplished all the things that God's called me to accomplish. It's in you too. That's amazing. That's a reality. Paul wants us to be read to the whole church. Why? Because he wants us to understand we were designed to have power. We were imparted power. Our legacy is power. And he says, you're going to have to fan that into flame. That means that that power can be in us and dormant. That we could not be exercising that power that we have to actually partner with the Holy Spirit, invite the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us, that we have to fan it into flame, Whew. right? I'm not a good at camping. That's how you start a fire, right? You gotta get some air in there, Whew. Whew. right? You can have an ember, you can have a spark, you can have all the potential energy in the world, but if you don't Whew. do a little work and fan that thing into flame, you got no fire, And Paul's saying, listen, remember something here, young Padawan. You're equipped to accomplish what I've, God's called you to do. It's not just your skill set. There is a fire in you. There is a power source in you. The Holy Spirit gifted by God, the counselor, the third person of the Trinity. He's alive and in you and willing to partner with you. But you got to partner and fan that thing into flame. Don't stop relying on it. it. got you. He got you this far. Don't abandon him. Now that you're doing, come on, now the work of just trying to figure out your life and faith. Don't leave the power part behind. How often do we leave the power part behind? Come on, guys. We get going on our journey. The transformation happens in our life and there's power, right? There's, there's power like, oh, I didn't used to be free and now I'm free. Power broke me free. I didn't know what God can do, but now I see what he can do and I trust him and there's power. God, the Holy Spirit came. I'm experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit and I'm free and it's working and that's awesome. And then thanks for that moment, God, I got it. And we leave the power behind. And Paul's like, you gotta fan that. You gotta keep fanning that flame. When's the last time you just had a conversation with God about the power that you need to accomplish what God's called you to accomplish? Not about the skills. Not just about the skills. Talk about the power, the authority. 
to do it. He's like, you got to get some of that fire back. Not your power, God's power to accomplish the thing God's called you to do. If God's called you to do it, he'll empower you to do it. He wants you to have the power. He says, there's this flame, a gift of God in you. I laid my hands on you. I know it. I know it. You've lived in it at times, and now you're not living in it. So live in it again. Just say it. Verse 7. We're getting to the tool now. This is what I want to talk about. <laughs> For God did not give us a spirit. Some versions will say fear, but I like this version of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. God did not give you a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of, see, this is how we know he's talking about the spirit. He's saying God's spirit, that flame that's in you was not fear-based. It was not timid. It was a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Some of you are like, well, some people are hard to love. Yeah, you have the spirit. You have the ability to love them. It's hard. I'm, I'm afraid. Okay, well, you don't have a spirit of fear in you. You don't understand, Pastor Mike, I'm, I'm wrestling with this behavior and I don't have the discipline. The spirit within you has that discipline and you have access to that because of who God is. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Now, this is one of the tough scriptures in all the Bible. I think it's one of the tough scriptures in all the Bible because we drop it into places like it will just fix things, but we don't know how to actually live it and partner with it. We drop it in. It's a good t-shirt. I mean, that's a good t-shirt verse. That'll, that'll rock on a bumper sticker. Like that's, a, that's solid on a, uh, you know, uh, one of those artsy, antsy things for your house, like a frame. Thing. Like that's a, that'll, that'll look good in your, in your living room. Like that's a good verse. It's a power verse. But what does it mean? And how do I do it? And what am I supposed to do with it? And so I was wrestling with this all, all week trying to figure out how to, how to talk about courage because the tool I want to talk about today is courage. Because God didn't give us a spirit of fear or of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. He's saying, you have got to hold on to the truth no matter how you feel. And that's really how I'm going to define courage for us this week. Courage is being able to hold on to the truth no matter how you feel. He's writing to a young leader in the family of God who is trying hard to influence and, and stay faithful to God in a culture that's constantly bringing tension and fighting and people are resting for control and there's this tension in there and Paul's writing to him and he's saying, listen, you got to fan into flame the power that I gave you because you don't have a spirit of fear in you. You got to hold on to what is true, no matter how this thing's making you feel. And here's what you need to understand. What's true is the spirit that God gave you is not one of timidity. But it gives you power, discipline, sound mind. He's saying this is how that works. Courage, courage is holding on to the truth no matter how I feel. You know, feelings are a weird thing. It's pretty funny because we're in this weird era where we make fun of feelings too much. Or we just say like, I don't care about your feelings and facts, not feelings. And, you know, like we make fun of feelings too much where we diminish the fact that we are emotional creatures who feel things and we're designed in the image of God and our feelings are given by God and that we should feel things. Feelings are okay. Feelings are healthy. Feelings are part of our design. Here's the thing about feelings. They're very real. The problem with feelings is they're not always true. Just because I feel something does not mean that it's true. Bobby's sitting over here and I could feel like Bobby doesn't like me. And if I feel that way, I got to deal with all of the stuff that that stirs up in me, right? He doesn't like me. I'm not good enough. 
Here's all the reasons he doesn't like me. I'm not doing a great job. I haven't, whatever, been a good friend. Whatever it is, right? I can, I can start building this whole narrative in my life. And I could live in this entire reality that isn't true at all. The reality is Bobby's probably sitting over here and he's thinking about something completely different. He's got lunch plans. It's the weekend. He's not even thinking about the fact that he doesn't like me. But I look over here and I go, oh, I don't think Bobby likes me. And suddenly I have all these feelings that are real. Come on now, but they're not true. They're not true. Some of the most, <laughs> I want to say powerful, but I don't know if it's powerful, just difficult conversations I've had with couples is this issue. She makes me feel like this. She's like, I'm not even thinking about that. He doesn't feel this. He's like, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking. We're not even having the same conversation. And there's this rift and there's whole inner narrative, this conversation that you're having on the inside with somebody that isn't actually happening except for in you. Come on now, you know you've been there. You've already had the fight three times before you see them. You've gone through the emotional gamut. They don't even know what you're getting ready to fight about. And the reality is you might not even have all the right data. You just feel a certain way. Isn't it true that we take the same approach with God sometimes? We feel like God must not be happy with us because something didn't go our way or we haven't felt close to him. We haven't felt, these feelings aren't, it's not, it doesn't feel the way it felt the last time. And so something must be wrong. And we're having this whole narrative about through our feelings that doesn't have, come on now, our faith isn't even a question yet. It doesn't have any facts with it. And so courage, he's telling Timothy, is understanding there is a spirit that's in you and it's not that one. And that, and that though there is a spirit that is fear and timidity, that's not the spirit you got. So you got to hold back on to what is true and the character and nature of God and the power and authority to love and have self-discipline that he gave you. That's the reality of who you are. That's what's true. It's pretty good stuff pretty helpful. So here's Paul and he's saying, I didn't give you a, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity. Now, here's something you got to catch. Fear and timidity can be a spirit. A spirit. We don't think about, we only think about it as an emotion, right? Ah, spider, right? An emotion, a reaction. But fear and timidity can be a spirit as well. Paul's saying, that ain't the spirit you got. When I laid on my hands, when I prayed for you, when you moved in authority into your calling, into your destiny, that's not the spirit. So if you're dancing with that spirit, that's the wrong spirit. Second, let's keep moving. I'll come back to that. Feeling's not always true, but real. So what happens when I don't feel so courageous? Let me give you some tools and then we'll unpack this fear thing a little bit more. Sometimes when I don't feel so courageous, I need to equip my courage. Come on, I gotta have the right equipment. I gotta equip my courage. And how can I equip my courage based on what Paul's written in these first seven verses, this opening dialogue with his young protege? Well, the first thing I want you to catch is this. Never forget the power of a praying friend. Paul's saying, I know you're going through it. Apparently, Timothy is going through it. We know he's been in tears. And we know Paul recognizes that it hasn't been the easiest thing. And, it, and it's tough, man. In all of our families, sometimes it comes to tear moments, right? And we need the power of a praying friend. If you don't have a praying friend, you are significantly weakened. This is an asset to you. It's like a tool that you don't have to strengthen your courage, this is why doing life in community is so important. This is why getting into a rooted group is so important. This is why spending time where we can share our story, where I can know what's going on in Barry's life or in Dan's life, and I can just say, yeah, how can I be praying for you? And I can be praying specifically for you. The power of a praying friend is a huge piece. And Paul wants Timothy to know you are not without that. Too many negatives. Did I say that right? You are not without that, I think. Never forget the power of a praying friend. Don't underestimate it. 
Don't leave it behind. Don't try to walk through your difficult seasons in isolation. This is just my cross to carry. I'm the only one who knows. Swing low, sweet chant. Right? We're just carrying our cross. It's like, nope, it's mine. It's my responsibility. I messed it up. I'll solve it. You were designed to live in community. You were supposed to be part of a body. God always intended to give us to one another so that we could one another each other through this and lift up one another in prayer. And if you remove yourself from that, you eliminate access to power. Stop doing that. Ways to quit my courage. Second, he says, fan into flame. The gift God gave you. We just talked about this. Remember, not only do you have praying friends, you have a spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, that you have access to. There is fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. There are so many tools that you have access to through God's word. He's expressed what kind of power you have access to. So you got to blow into that. You have to trust God. It says, fan into flame the gift God gave you. When you're feeling like you don't have, come on now, when your courage isn't quite equipped for the task, go back and say, okay, what do I know is true about who God is? And the third one is kind of simple, but it's, it goes without saying, just remember who's in control. Remember God who loves you, cares for you. The word says your heavenly father knows what you need. The hairs on your head are counted. Remember Who's in control? Paul's in a hole, facing death. Not worried about it at all. If I was in a hole facing death, the entire letter would be about what's going on in my life. This dude above me, please stop feeding him. Right? That would be the whole letter. He doesn't talk about it at all because he understands who's in control. This is the same guy that says, hey, if I die, that's great for me get to be in heaven if I stay that's great for you I get to be here with you I'm just a blessing wherever I'm at (laughs) telling you this guy kills me remember who's in control maybe you're asking the question now why do I even need to be courageous what's the point if I'm courageous or not courageous I get it but I want you to hear something. We just don't talk about this enough in church. This is a thing that we just don't talk about. I have, (laughs) from time to time, people ask me questions about specific behaviors, like, is this okay? Is this not okay? Is this okay? You know, and really what people are asking is, so here's the line. How close can I get to the line before it like zaps me? Right? I want to really play with fire, but I know it's going to burn me. But can I get, how close can I get to the fire? That's the question. That's the, honestly, that's the worst question you can ask me because that's all I hear in my head is I really want to do what I shouldn't do. So how close can I get to doing that? And God's still okay with me? I just, that's, the, that's not the question. I don't want to have that conversation usually. But, but, uh, but I'm just going to be honest with you. We talk about all kinds of things, but you know what no one ever comes into the office and says they're struggling with? Bravery, courage. No one ever comes in and says, my issue is cowardice, right? No one comes in the office and says, my issue is cowardice. But then look at the scriptures. Revelation 21.8, it's a fun one. It says, um, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, all liars, all of them, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I didn't write that. But it opens with the cowardly. We never talk about that. We're happy to talk about almost everything else on that list. We're happy to just press into it. We're happy to make judgments and decisions on how close you are to any of those other things. But no one ever looks someone in the eye and says, you know what your issue is? Cowardly. It should be safe because if you're accurate, they're not going to fight you. (laughs) just saying but we never go there we'll call someone something else we'll tell them yeah you're sexually immoral you're dabbling with idolatry you're diving into other things that you shouldn't be in you're a liar we'll tell you that we'll never get into someone's face though and say your issue is you don't have 
courage of your convictions. Whoo! Why don't we have that conversation in church? Because it's awkward, just like it is in the room right now. <laughs> right? It's a hard conversation to have, but here's Paul saying, you don't have a spirit of fear. You don't have a spirit of timidity. And if you do do those things, that's not from God. Jesus, after walking on or calming the storm in Mark chapter 4, turns around to his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? You still don't have any faith? Time and time again, the scriptures talk about courage and fear. It's like 200 something times. The scriptures talk about take courage, have courage, don't be afraid, fear not. It's like 200 something times we're commanded not to be afraid. But we don't want to talk about not being afraid in church. Just saying, we don't. How many messages have you heard where someone said, don't be a coward? It's just the thing we talk about. In the New Testament, there's two kinds of fear in the Bible. There's two kinds of fear in the Bible. And I'm going to break this down just for you real quickly here before we run out of time, because I want you to understand this last piece before I run out of time. But the reality is this, there's two kinds of fear in the Bible. The scripture uses two words. One is the word delius, which is timidity. This is why this is so important. This is the word that Paul says. You don't have a spirit of timidity. It's the root word of the word intimidation. It's the root word of the word intimidation. We're going to come back to that in a second because the next word is phobio. Phobeo, I don't know how to say it. And that's to be alarmed or be in awe of something. And there's two types of fear in the Bible. And one fear that the scriptures talk about is phobio or phobeo. It's being an alarmed or being in awe of something. And this is the fear when, when Jesus says, don't fear man who can just harm the body, but fear God who after death has the power to throw you into hell. He's like, he's like have a healthy fear of the right thing. And then he goes on to say, but don't fear because your heavenly father knows how many hairs are on your head. It's the same conversation, right? So Jesus is saying, you don't have to have phobeo, but it's not a sin to be afraid. It's not a sin to be like, ah, I don't like spiders, right? That's not a sin. Now, if it paralyzes you and a spirit of fear takes over and you won't leave the house because there's spiders in the world, that's another story. It's not a fear to look over the edge of a cliff. It's not a sin to look over the edge of a cliff and go, oh, I don't like that. That's phobeo and it's not forbidden. Jesus just corrects and says, if you ever point that at a person, don't do that the short-term implications of what they can do to you have nothing on the long-term implications of your heavenly father loving you and taking care of you. He's like, don't worry about that. But there's another fear. Can we go back to that one? The other fear, delios, and it's timidity. And that's why I like this translation that said we don't have a spirit of timidity because that timidity is this idea of intimidation that you can get bullied that someone can push you off the truth because they've overpowered you and you didn't have the courage to stand up for what you knew was right, for what you knew needed to happen. And that's the kind of fear that Revelation 21.8 says, those folks, they get pushed off the truth. They are not willing to stand for what they believe on their convictions. And there's a spirit attached to that. That if you invite that spirit in and you stop standing up for what you know is right, you will always run away from what's right to what is easy. And Revelation says that kind of, that kind of spirit of fear, when you invite that in, that runs you off of your path with God runs you away. So Paul says to Timothy, and this type of fear doesn't come up very many times in the scripture, this Delius. It, it, it's this, this idea, actually, and I think in Luke 4 is the other time that it comes up, and, and Jesus is just kind of bursting onto the scene, and, uh, and these uh, soldiers are saying, well, you know, we want to follow you. What should we do? And he says, well, take an honest day's pay and stop intimidating or bullying people and taking advantage of them. There's like a, a bullying oppression that comes with someone who's, who's, a, who's an intimidator. I don't know how to conjugate Delius into that uh, tense, but who's doing that. And he's saying, when you're in the presence of someone like that, you don't back down, follower of Jesus, mighty man of God, person who has the authority and power of the Holy Spirit in you. You're not called to back down from the bullies who want to tell you how to believe and what to believe and how to live for God. That's not who you are. It's not the spirit that you received. 
And when you see that spirit, you recognize that spirit and you stand up to it and you say, not today. And the tool Paul wants to make sure Timothy has that. He wants to make sure the church hears. And he's going to go on. He's going to break down all of these instances of how people uh, are lovers of themselves and, and are trying to constantly justify this behavior, saying, oh, you can serve God and also all of this nonsense. And he's trying to convince the church that you can just compromise, 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 even though you know it's not right. You just don't want to confront. And there's a cowardice in that, a spirit of fear in that. And he's like, that has to get out of the church. That has to get out of the people of God. We gotta be able to stand up for our convictions of who God designed us to be because the spirit we have gives us power. It's loving, but there's self-discipline. He says, that's the spirit you have, Timothy. And if you start from that place, then we can have a power conversation the whole way through about how do we live in this messy community and one another each other and lift one another up and pray for one another and be with one another. He's like, we can do all of that. But if you're gonna just fall and fall back every time your courage gets tested, if you're gonna, you know, that every time someone brings a tough topic up or tries to lean into you to compromise, if that spirit's gonna have access to you, if it's gonna bully you, that's not who you're designed to be. So you gotta get that out of here. And we gotta start with some courage, with some power, with some fire. And if we have that, come on now, nothing can stop us. And here's the last thing I want you to catch. He is saying this to the generation coming up behind him. And he's like, listen, our group, my group, we ran our race. We did everything we could do to take it to this point and we're handing it to you. So don't be weak. Don't be afraid. Don't let a spirit come in that convinces you to compromise, to, to, to weaken and fall back. And I gotta tell you, it takes a lot of courage to invest in that next generation. It takes a lot of courage for, 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 for uh, saints of God, come on, the church, to look at the next generation and say, I know we're handing it off and you're gonna play a little different and sing a little different and you're gonna choose a little different lighting and some of your styles are gonna be different. But the same spirit, the same power that we experience, that we imparted to you is going to be the power that carries you, come on now, through the next season, through the difficulties of it, through the changes, through the things we never imagined that you would have a, a digital footprint that they would have, that people all over the world would have access to, to judge you and throw words at you. Like we didn't have to deal with that at all. And now you have to deal with that, but don't worry. Because the same power that got in you when we prayed for you, when we handed this, when we trusted you, come on church, is gonna carry you, just fan it into flame. Go, run. In this next season of Celebration Center and this next season of our church kind of, kind of becoming 2.0 and moving into the, the, the next season, we're gonna have to have that kind of courage, church, to say, yeah, there's some things that we recognize are critical power things. And it's gonna look different as we pass that power to the next generation, as we begin to lift and build up that next generation. But it's the same spirit, it's the same power, it's love and self-discipline, it's available and we can impart that. Woo! And then their testimony can be, yeah, that faith was in my grandma, my spiritual grandma, my grandpa, my spiritual grandma, my dad, my spiritual dad. And they imparted that into me. And we took it and we ran with it. And we changed the South Hill and then we changed Puyallup and we changed Tacoma and we went after Seattle. We just started changing the world because we knew we had power. And that's our story. Would you stand? So this is the letter we're diving into and this is the narrative that we're walking into. How do we be equipped to accomplish that? And, and uh, I know I, I was... I was real teachy today. I'm sorry if that was too teachy, but I just want you to catch the heart of Paul as he's imparting this incredible legacy. And then I want us to catch that legacy so that we can give it away. So this is how I'm gonna pray. God, we need courage. We need to be able to hold on to what's true no matter how we feel. Sometimes we feel like things are changing too fast and we don't have, we gotta control things and we don't have to control things because you're in control. Sometimes we feel like it's hopeless, but it's not hopeless because you're the anchor of our hope. 
Sometimes we feel like it's out of control, but it's not out of control because, again, you've got us in your hands and you still have the whole world in your hands. And I pray right now for those of us that maybe have been struggling with a spirit of fear, timidity. We've been intimidated in our faith. We've been intimidated. In, maybe in our workplace, we've been intimidated. In our home, we've been intimidated. In our neighborhood, we've been intimidated. And we've shrunk back from this power that we experienced when we first experienced you. And I pray, God, that this would be a moment that you'd begin to fan into flame the power that we receive, the gift that you gave us to be courageous, because it's going to take courage to make a difference. It's going to take courage to have conversations that are difficult conversations. It's going to take courage to tell our story. It's going to take courage to invite people into this story, but it's worth it because you called us to love, and we can't do it without that courage. So give us the courage, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen.